Hello, and welcome to Hush Plus One, where we talk to exciting artists, designers, and makers pretty much every week. I'm your host, Adam Kruckenberg, and on today's episode, we have the incredibly thoughtful and talented Annie Liu. As a research-based artist, her multidisciplinary work bridges the gap between science and art. Annie was such a delight to talk to, and I hope you find this interview as enjoyable as I did. Um, my name is Annie Liu. I'm an artist that works at the intersection of science and technology. Um, I like to make art using these tools of science and technology to investigate what it means to be human. So to look at the cultural, emotional, so and small questions. Yeah, Real yeah, yeah. small okay. questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Sorry, I just gave you the elevator. That's great. It's great. I just, I just totally derailed you because you know you're like dealing with you know the fundamental questions about consciousness and who you are as a person and what is a person. And- <laughs> no, it's it's actually it always starts so personal, right? It's always about like trying to get over an ex or like dealing with my own existential jealousy or something like that. Um, but I think that so much of the kind of tech utopia we have right now is just that it's like a very bland utopia that doesn't take into account um, any of the messier aspects of being human, right? Like there's so many, even on my own phone, I have so many apps that are like, organize your life, meditate every day. <laughs> like, Quantify itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like in reality, it's never going to be like that. Um, so I, I like to use my license as an artist to look at those messier cracks. Um, And I think it's interesting when I think there's a lot of already sci-fi that kind of critiques the kind of app tech or the swipe tech, Mm -hmm. but um, to look at, for instance, things that we consider the foundations of truth, like um, the biases in the way we look in the way we conduct science even. Although I have to say that like for me, it's also a very charged contested thing because like, for instance, we're still fighting battles about whether climate change exists and like some people not believing in the scientific method. It's not the scientific method that I'm questioning, but like the kind of biases that happens when humans conduct science with the scientific method. Sure. I mean, you were at uh, MIT Media Lab. And so you've got a lot of experience with people who are very, very steeped in science and mm-hmm. technology that maybe is a lot different than a lot of people who are in art and design. Yeah. Um, and I have so much respect for the expertise of both populations. And I think it's so interesting when they collide. Um, I don't know. It's been interesting. Like I remember being at MIT and um, a computer scientist had asked me if I could teach him how to be an artist in 20 minutes or something like that, like literally like what? 20 minutes. And I was like, well, it's not like learning Python or something, you know? Um, and so it's such a different, it's, it's that each um, perhaps field has certain paradigms in which they operate in. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting. So I, I sort of took us out of out of order here. Um, sure. I'd love for you to sort of uh, to talk a little bit about 
how you got your start doing what you're doing and mm. uh, just the, just, you know, touch the high points. Um, it's cheesy, but I've always wanted to be an artist <laughs> like ever since I was little Who and, didn't? uh, <laughs> uh super cheesy psychotherapy but like my mother was a tiger mom typical asian american so that was totally out of the question um so i think where i ended up is really kind of marrying the two or negotiating the desires of my culture with what i wanted um so yeah also i think i was always kind of a nerd and kind of geeky so learning new tools keeps me excited creatively i think Excellent. So uh, you started, uh, you, you went, uh, give me a little bit of info about your, your schooling and how you got to doing what you're doing. Ah. So, so you were like, uh, you started out in architecture? Started out in architecture. Um, I have a master's of architecture from Harvard and a master's of science from MIT. And before that, I went to Dartmouth undergrad. So it's like all of that um, Chinese American tiger mom <laughs> product. Um, and so I think it, I don't know, it, in a way it's a very untraditional path to art, but it's been really nice. Yeah. Um, I'd love for you to tell us some about the first artwork that you did that sort of began to define this, uh, intersection between science and art for Mm. you. Um, the very first art piece that I made, um, that started this whole journey was actually, my last year of architecture school, I became a little bit depressed. Um, I very idealistically had gone into architecture thinking that it really could change the way we live and think. And then I had just finished an internship where I was designing luxury walk-in closets in luxury apartments. And I got yelled at because the closet wasn't big enough. And hadn't I ever been in a walk-in closet before? No, I haven't. (laughs) Um, And I was teaching myself how to... um, program for fun. I don't know how this happened. I think I came across Adafruit, which is this really awesome website. They have all these kick-ass tutorials. Hopefully about, we'll get them uh, we'll get them in them here so uh, sometimes. Yeah. yeah, no, we we use Adafruit all the time and a lot of the guests that we've talked to for this are very big into Adafruit. So everybody go to adafruit.com and uh, buy some stuff and learn some stuff. Yeah, they make the learning super accessible. Um, And so I was just blowing off some steam, learning how to use an Arduino. And um, it was kind of magical for me because in architecture school, I had learned how to 3D print, how to laser cut, how to CNC. So kind of almost make anything. And then with a microcontroller, I was like, now I can give it a brain and it can react. Um, So I was in my bedroom. I was um, learning how to make these things. And then I was also reading Sherry Turkle's book, Alone Together. And it was all about how um, these devices we have, like cell phones, are supposed to bring us closer together. But people actually feel lonelier and lonelier. And I actually, that really resonated with me because I'm pretty shy and introverted. um, And there were a lot of parties that I went to where I would just spend the whole time looking at my phone (laughs) pretending like my social life was so happening that I can't be present. Um, But really it's because I didn't know enough people and I was just really awkward feeling. So the first thing I made from this Adafruit tutorial on servos was this helmet that um, would keep my whole face obscured unless someone held my hand. (laughs) And I was trying to make a piece about that alone together um, and how, you know, instead of tech that, bridges 
you there's like this tech that kind of disables you a little bit until someone like gives you a very like traditional interaction. So I made this really weird helmet and that was the first thing I made that made me think, huh? Yeah. Maybe this is a thing that I want to do because this is way more interesting than everything I was just doing. (laughs) I'd much rather be doing this than making walk-in closets. Yeah. It was just super exciting because, um, I was taking a class with Chuck Hoberman who made the Hoberman spheres, like those toys that go like um, from very tiny circle to gigantic sphere. And so I was looking at a lot of like mechanisms and then suddenly with the servo and like sensors, it just, it just, um, I don't know. It got really excited. I was like in my bedroom, (laughs) like feeling electrified. That's amazing. I'm thinking about uh, some of the other stuff that, you know, you, you encounter new technology and then immediately seem to have something to do with it. I'm thinking about when you were, uh, when you got to use CRISPR and you were at MIT where you, where you were doing that. Um, and some of the, the bio art that you started making. Could you talk a little bit about some of that? Mm. I didn't use CRISPR specifically. Um, okay, sorry. but no, no, no worries. I'm, I'm wrong. <laughs> um, it was so, so again, the same way that I became so um, rejuvenated when I first learned how to use an Arduino, I was like, I did not know you could do that with organisms. And it kind of freaked me out, actually, because like programming an LED, turning on and off, you're like, that's cool. But like messing with the color fluorescence of E. coli, like that's, you know, a living organism or um, getting it to create smells that you think that are are pleasant or not. It really, for me, it was really existential. And especially um, for some of the pieces, for instance, with like moving sperm or moving um, paramecium, they kind of look like pixels on a screen, but then you realize these are not actually pixels. So for me, it was both being enthralled with learning these new tools, but also thinking really deeply about the ethical implications of it. Um, and around that time, I started to think of myself as a multi-organism organism. So I was very interested in the health of others. Um, you're, you're like a collective. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, what am I doing with the rest of the collective? Um, and of course, everything, all of the anxieties that we have with climate change. And, um, I think we're starting to understand as humans, like just how reliant we are on the collective. So we just, uh, we just talked quite a bit about the human microbiome and some of the art that you did with it. Uh, I'd love to reference that a little bit for people who are listening, who weren't at the, mm. the talk that we just, uh, had. So, uh, talk a little bit about the microbiome and what you were doing artistically mm-hmm. with that. Um, so I took this class one of the first classes I took at the MIT Media Lab is called How to Grow Almost Anything. Um, and in that class, you learn like the whole spectrum of bio. And one of the classes that I was really interested in was about the microbiome. And there's this really sweet scientist who was talking about um, the impact of microbiome on mice. So basically, um, he was showing us data and images of mice who were born with no microbiome and then were introduced to the microbiome of mice with different traits like depression or anxiety and aggression. And then they would exhibit those traits, which to me blew my mind because it didn't, it wasn't encoded in the mice DNA. It wasn't encoded in their nature or nurture. It was just like other organisms that caused it to exhibit things that I found so profoundly personal, like, um, 
you know, like fear response or like anxiety is something that I think some, a lot of us think is part of us, like identity wise. So I started to really question what makes up who I am. Um, and to kind of, it start, I started to really break from this very Western notion of identity and ego as a singular thing. Um, and I started to really think about all of the things that make up a microbiome, like everyone you've ever kissed or um, all of the foods that you've eaten or the dirty handrails you've touched <laughs> um, and the places you've traveled. Someone who grew up in New York, I'm sure that, that's <laughs> definitely impacted your microbiome. Yeah, and... Not only that, you know, so I started to create a series of self-portraits about my microbiome, but more importantly, I was really interested in how we would behave um, almost like on a political scale, too, if we didn't think of ourselves as individuals, if we thought of our health as a much more extended unit, um, you know, like how would we think about quote unquote trash if we felt like it was vibrant and alive and part of us? So it, I don't know, like the microbiome studies really started to change how I thought about individualism and myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so you were doing that and then you were, then you were engineering microorganisms. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> it to was... smell like different things or to create different pigments. Yeah. It was a uh, very dual fold. Like at the same time I was learning, like, experiencing all kinds of new profound respect for microorganisms I was also just like messing with it the way like a toddler messes with bricks for the first time um it was such it was like I don't know it's just I guess anyone who's ever had a garden kind of has this feeling too like when you program Arduinos again um for the most part, if you write the code correctly, the LEDs will flash as you want. But when you work with living things, they have a kind of like living sentience of their own. So they don't always um, cooperate. <laughs> and so working with living things became, again, a very like philosophical and emotional experience of like, oh, there's a certain kind of collaboration and respect. Um, but again, I became really interested because we are fleshy biological creatures so we do respond very well to certain visceral biological design so for instance smell is one of them it's super tied to memory and emotion and um i became really interested in designing in this space which is very challenging <laughs> designing in smell space specifically yeah. using biological exactly components. so I was trying to grow uh, a plant that smelled like someone specifically um and it's interesting because commercially we've done it a few times. For instance, I've read that tulips naturally don't have a smell, but we like flowers that smell. So we've engineered some kind of smell into tulips, which is like totally weird. Um, and for instance, like there's a lot of agricultural companies that engineer their crops um, so that they can't reproduce after one cycle. So you always have to buy seeds from them, um, like literally engineering food crops for not necessarily nutrition, but for like capitalist benefit. So I, w I became really interested in, um, could we use these same tools to create, I don't know, like humane plants that speak to an emotional aspect of um, biotech. But of course, <laughs> I think it also backfires too, because 
even my dream of creating this emotional plant is like highly consumable <laughs> and also sure, like yeah. very anthropocentric. Like, I know a lot of people would want to pay a lot of money to make this thing happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's always, um, I don't know, a tough recursive part of any art practice, like things that you're trying to critique sometimes end up being exactly the dystopian thing you're making. <laughs> Do you still teach? Uh, I'm about to teach uh, at Princeton as an arts fellow for the next two years. What's the title of your class? Um, I'm actually trying to choose between two. <laughs> one, I wanted to teach a class about feminist technology. Um, the other one is something like reality R&D because I feel like we design reality through our tech. So. Reality R&D. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of my practice is about how technology and design creates this feedback loop about what are cultural norms. So I'm hoping they'll investigate specific um, technologies and then critique them through making very speculative objects. Um, it's It goes in line with the feminist tech too, because when I was doing some research on feminist tech, it's so interesting, like everything from, for instance, birth control pills or uh, at-home pregnancy tests can be seen as empowering women, but then also like some people consider the dishwasher feminist tech, <laughs> but like that in itself, right, is like so positioned and like, oh, it's liberating women from labor that are women supposed to be in charge of anyway. Um, and then it gets all the way down to like some people saying that sex dolls are feminist tech because it liberates the female body from male sexual pleasure. So these things, um, they're all meant to provoke and ask questions about what our norms are. I know that you were talking before about what led you to a certain art project that you were doing where you were electrically controlling sperm, specifically having women do that with brainwaves. Uh -huh. The texts about female biology being written by men, some of the implications for that. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, a few years ago, after Donald Trump said, grab them by the pussy and then became elected um, as president, I was so disturbed, not only for all of the policies that he would enact, but also him as a cultural figure and how little girls will feel knowing that this person who has these views about women is their leader. Um, and I really wanted to create something to counteract that symbolically. Um, so around this time, I created this piece where women could wear an EEG machine and control the movement of sperm with their mind. The sperm would swim left, right, up or down. Um, and in many ways, it's very metaphorical, but also like the sperm actually swim this way in the electric field. Um, and I was, you know, people would talk to me and talk about how absurd it was. And, and that was the whole point. I wanted to talk about the absurdity of the biopolitics of female bodies, like genital mutilation, how absurd, like not allowing females to make certain choices about their bodies, how absurd. And then also to um, create an experiential artwork in which you could feel control or lack of control, um, I thought was really interesting. And also just to question what is biologically possible. It was so disturbing because when I was doing all this research about sperm and eggs and galvanotaxis, I started to realize that even in the scientific texts and literature itself, um, the, the language was very biased and gendered. So for instance, I remember reading a quote that was something to the tune of, and then the sperm makes the heroic journey to the egg, <laughs> like, and then um, 
many descriptions across many texts where like the egg is considered garbage that is sloughed off if it's not fertilized, like as if that is the only function of certain female anatomy. As if that doesn't happen to trillions of sperm in any situation. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And I became, again, I super believe in the scientific method. I love science and technology and all of the kind of breakthroughs and how we understand ourselves through it. But I started to become very critical about the biases of the humans that conduct science. Um, So the more I started reading specifically about female bodies in scientific texts, it became more and more problematic. And I started to realize, like, there's a whole history of one gender describing (laughs) the anatomical and physiological reality of a different gender and how problematic it was. Um, So, yeah, I think that hopefully in artworks like the mind-controlled sperm piece, people start to kind of question what is possible. And I think that we are in a time where we're starting to culturally question what is possible and what is a choice and and what is designable and like the difference between identity and and biology, I think is super important. I can't imagine how lucky someone would be to take either one of these classes from you. You sound like you're really, really thinking about something that feels new. What's next? Um, so I'm currently 32 weeks pregnant and I've been experimenting with some art around, um, my own experiences with this profound biological change, um, which is also a very cultural one and very emotionally fraught. Um, so specifically some of the things I've been thinking about, um, have been the relationship between my physiology and my psychology actually. So as many people know, pregnancy brings through a lot of physical discomforts like heartburn and aches and nausea. And um, a lot of those changes are the underlying mechanisms for that are hormonal changes that also give you like, honestly, I've never felt so much love (laughs) and um, so much tenderness. And again, this identity shift between like what I want and the wants like, Often, I know it sounds crazy, but like often, even when I'm feeling like super nauseated, I don't mind so much because I feel happy that um, my my fetus is healthy. And so like the shift between what I want and like what I want plus some other entities um, betterment has been a really interesting shift. And at the same time, I have this like entire anxiety, like, is this very unfeminist for me to like consider my body, not my own. And like, there's such a history of that. Um, so I've been really interested in how my body changes have psychologically prepared or unprepared me for the kind of changes that are happening. Um, and then, I don't know. I like talk to a lot of people about it and it's been interesting because I also keep thinking like, is it a very human thing to um, make sense of suffering? (laughs) Like specifically, again, I think about pregnancy and female bodies and suffering. Like for instance, there's all these charged cultural notions of what 
we should or should not do when we're pregnant. And even things like, are you going to have an epidural? Like, are you going to use this technology that allows you to have a more comfortable experience? And then, but like, does not having one make you a better mom because you suffered more? And so this whole relationship between technology, suffering and the body has been on my mind a lot. And I'm making new work about it. That sounds interesting. Can you talk about any of the work? Yeah. So um, right now I'm making a whole bunch of prototypes. Um, Again, this is like super new work, so I don't really know how to talk about it. But um, I'm making a whole bunch of prototypes of wearable tech that allows other people to feel some of these discomforts of pregnancy. Um, Because, you know, I'm sitting there like throwing up and like totally bloated and everything hurts. And I was like, okay, my body is preparing me for parenthood. And then I look over at my husband (laughs) who's just sitting there drinking a beer (laughs) and like, how is his body preparing him for fatherhood? (laughs) Um, And so like I've created this set of things like um, a belly pad that allows him to feel cramps, but also baby kicks and a bra that makes his pecs feel engorged and leaking milk and a pair of panties that makes him pee himself when he sneezes. <laughs> like these are really real things that my body is oh, going yeah. through right now. And I'm like being humbled and learning humility and also like having the experience of we'll being cohabitated. <laughs> yeah. And so I wanted him to feel it too. Um, and so this is a set of works that is like really in progress and I'm still feeling through it. But I'm also thinking about a future, for instance, where we might have artificial wombs and we might not experience biological pregnancy anymore, but culturally might we still want the artifacts of experiencing biological pregnancy for whatever psychological reasons. Um, and um, yeah, the, the set of works will actually be shown at the end of September in San Francisco at the Chandran Gallery. So hopefully... <laughs> People will. So this is at the end of September. So right before you're due. Yeah, right before I'm due, I have like three artworks that are being exhibited. So I've been like in crazy production mode. How am I gonna get there? Like, (laughs) oh yeah, it's been interesting. A lot of coordination, um, learning how to make work in a different way, and also negotiating. um, Yeah, because usually I'm there physically installing. So like learning how to negotiate that has been interesting too. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming. Uh, It's been a pleasure to have you and uh, good luck with all the next steps. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 